This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. You can picture her there, lying on her stomach in the dirt, arcing her camera up towards the building, tilting the frame so that the stark rectilinear building transforms into a striking asymmetric composition. You can see her taking her time with this photo, adjusting the focus and the exposure. She releases the shutter, impressing the negative image onto a glass plate. 90 years later, this photograph by Lucia Maholi is one of the most famous images of the German art school known as the Bauhaus. Bau, meaning the word build in German, and Haus, meaning house. Mediocre German speaker Sam Greenspan. The Bauhaus was founded by architect Walter Gropius in 1919. The school sought to fuse art with industrialization, to use new ideals of modernism to create beautiful, functional things, which could be mass-produced for the betterment of society. In the beginning, the Bauhaus rose from the ashes of World War I, and there was a very hopeful, very utopian period of craftsmen and artists all creating together. This is Robin Schuldenfrey. I teach architectural and design history at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London, but I'm American. The Bauhaus was a magnet for European designers, architects, and artists of all kinds in the early 20th century, many of whom would go on to achieve international acclaim. The photographer Lucia Maholi did not become one of those famous artists. She joined the Bauhaus in 1923, but not as a teacher or as a student. Her husband, Laszlo Maholi Naj, had been hired onto the faculty of the Bauhaus. And so Lucia set off with him to become part of this new, exciting place. Yeah, they're, they're a young couple, right? They're young, they're in love, they come to the Bauhaus. Lucia, like the wives of the other Bauhaus faculty, did what was expected of her which was to do some kind of work that would help fulfill the mission of the school. Unpaid, of course. Lucia had some training in photography. She had the darkroom skills, and she had really excellent technical skills of the period. So Lucia became a kind of in-house documentarian for the Bauhaus. She made portraits of the people there, of the things that they made, and of the architecture of the school itself. Walter Gropius designed the school's campus in Dessau, and those buildings became a major theme of Lucia's work. She photographed the workshops, the dormitories, the master's houses. She set about showing the spaces where these new methods and philosophies of design were being made. You can see the way in which Lucia's photographs of Walter Gropius's architecture expressed the same ideas that he wanted to express in the architecture itself. And this is not by chance. Lucia's photography, like Gropius's architecture, is all about clarity and simplicity of form. It is utilitarian, documenting the world as it is. And it's also beautiful, reveling in clean lines and stark contrasts. And it's minimal, showing only what's needed and nothing more. From the dark room in her and Laszlo's home on the Bauhaus campus, Lucia amassed a collection of five or six hundred photographs. And she couldn't have known then the impact that these images would have on the built world or on her own life. The Bauhaus aspired to lift society up out of the wreckage of World War I and into a new world of rationalism, beauty, good art, and good design to bring its brand of utopianism into the world at large. But for all their efforts, the world did not become more utopian. The National Socialist government put the Bauhaus under increasing pressure. In 1933, it was closed down by the Nazis. 
Many members of the Bauhaus were forced to flee immediately because they were Jewish or because they were involved in very left radical politics and they had to go. Amidst all the turmoil of the Nazis' rise to power, Laszlo and Lucia had separated. Lucia started dating a Communist Party member of parliament. One day in 1933, he was arrested in Lucia's apartment while she was out. So she was not able to return to her apartment because she had to fear that she was arrested immediately too. Somebody told her, don't get back to your apartment. This is Rolf Zaxa. He teaches at the University of Saarbrücken in Germany, and he knew Lucia Moholy. She had to emigrate immediately, so what she did was flee to her Czech family. So she went to Prague first. And then she went to Paris via Austria, via Switzerland. Eventually landing in London in 1933, Lucia had left behind nearly everything she owned, including the glass negatives of the Bauhaus. As she fled the country for an uncertain fate abroad, Lucia left the legacy of the Bauhaus to an uncertain fate at home. Lucia weathered out the war in London. She had arrived in the city with basically nothing, and at one point lost everything again when her apartment was bombed by German warplanes. But even in all the chaos of war, Lucia found ways to work. She wrote a book about the history of photography. 100 Years of Photography, that was published by Penguin in 1939. And uh, and at the same time, she was quite a successful portrait photographer for the high society in London. And for the most part, she put the Bauhaus behind her. She said to me that she didn't know that the Bauhaus was more than an episode in her life. She stopped thinking about it. At least until after the war. I suppose that in 1946 she received the MoMA catalogue of 1938. That must have been the first hint for her. Back in 1938, completely unbeknownst to Lucia, Walter Gropius had worked with the Museum of Modern Art in New York, MoMA, to put together an exhibition on the Bauhaus. And because the war was still going on at the time, MoMA hadn't been able to get many of the Bauhaus's objects out of Germany. And so the exhibition was comprised mostly of photographs. Images of the products they designed, the people who made them, and the buildings where they worked and lived. Images of the dormitories, the master's houses, the workshops. Photos that use interesting angles to transform stark rectilinear structures into striking asymmetric compositions. Those photographs were published in the museum catalog, the book that accompanied the exhibition. She would have seen her own photographs. But not her name. The 1938 MoMA catalog and other catalogs and books coming out from the U.S. do not credit her. Again, historian Robin Schuldenfrey. She also begins to see new articles that mention the Bauhaus that are illustrated with good reproductions of her photographs. Following World War II, there was a surge of interest in the Bauhaus. All of their ideas about rationalism and modernism had caught on among post-war architects and designers. More and more books and articles about the Bauhaus were getting published, and Lucia's photographs kept getting circulated. And the quality seemed to be better than you'd expect from duplications of old prints. Lucia begins to think that, just maybe, her collection of 5 by 7 inch glass negatives might have made it through the war after all. And she begins to think, or to sense, that her negative might have somehow survived. So she starts to try to get her negatives back. Lucia's first move is to write to her ex-husband, Laszlo, who had since emigrated to America with his second wife, Sibel. 
Lucia asks if he had any clues about where the negatives she had left behind might have ended up. Sibel tells her that they in fact left these cumbersome negatives in Gropius's house, in Gropius's basement. Gropius, completely unbeknownst to Lucia, had actually taken her negatives with him to the U.S. when he had emigrated more than a decade earlier. Likely because he had friends who were higher-ups in the Nazi party. And so when Gropius left Germany, he didn't have to flee in a hurry. He was able to carefully pack up his belongings, Lucia's heavy, fragile glass negatives among them, and bring them with him to Harvard, where he recently got a job. Lucia writes to Gropius, These negatives are irreplaceable documents, which could be extremely useful, now more than ever. Walter Gropius writes back. Long years ago in Berlin, you gave all these negatives to me. You will imagine that these photographs are extremely useful to me and that I have continuously made use of them. So I hope you will not deprive me of them. Lucia responds to Gropius saying basically, I never gave you my negatives. Surely you did not expect me to delay my departure in order to draw up a formal contract stipulating date and conditions of return? No formal agreement could have carried more weight than our friendship. It is this friendship I have always relied on, and which also I am now invoking. But when invoking friendship didn't work, Lucia hired a lawyer who wrote to Gropius that his holding on to Lucia's negatives was like a firefighter saving a house and then claiming ownership of all the stuff inside. But still, Gropius was not giving them back. Gropius did never anything for anybody except for himself. He didn't help her. He wrote very kind letters, uh, said, yes, yes, uh, we have to think about it, we have to think about it, we have to think about it, and he did nothing. This whole argument raises the question of who owns the image of a building. Intellectual property law on photography has evolved over the years, and it still varies by country. But generally, if you take a picture of a two-dimensional thing, like a painting, it doesn't show any artistry on your part, and therefore you have no claim to the ownership of that image. But if you take a picture of a three-dimensional thing, like a building, you're making decisions about position, angle, lighting, framing... You're not just reproducing what's quote-unquote really there, you're making something entirely new. And so, generally, copyright on those images, that is, not just the negatives, but also the prints that Gropius would have been making from them, legally, that all belonged to Lucia. In any case, Gropius kept making prints, kept publishing them, kept circulating her representations, kept telling the story of the Bauhaus through Lucia's photography. Architecture is, in many ways, understood and consumed through photography. We don't get to see most of the world's iconic buildings. We see pictures of those buildings. And this turned out to be especially true of the Bauhaus buildings. Because after the start of the Cold War, the West's access to the Bauhaus campus was cut off by the Iron Curtain. Even in East Germany, it was incredibly difficult to photograph these buildings. Yes, because there was no possibility of visiting them properly, and there was absolutely no chance of taking a photograph of them. I've been there for the first time in my life in the 1970s. I went to Dessau, and whenever I took off my camera, somebody came up and said, no, you can't photograph here because the Bauhaus buildings at that time were surrounded by Soviet military buildings. Photography was banned at the Bauhaus campus in Dessau from 1950 until 1980. And then later, after reunification, the buildings were altered slightly. 
And so, to this day, scholars like Robin Schuldenfrey say that Lucia's photographs are the best representation we have of the Bauhaus. In a way, it's like those photographs are the Bauhaus. And so even the slides that I myself was taught about the Bauhaus in the mid-1990s, many of them were still these black and white images because they are such good quality. After years of legal disputes, Lucia Maholi finally succeeded in getting nearly 300 of her negatives back. But it was, in a sense, too late for her. And so I think that part of the story is unfortunate. Lucia Maholi died in 1989. Her negatives went to the Bauhaus archive in Berlin. And it's from Lucia's photos that architects and designers drew inspiration to rebuild the post-war world. People who rebuilt Europe drew on the ideas of the Bauhaus. They looked to its modern, rectilinear, asymmetric architecture as a counter to the buildings that the Nazis had made. Fascism had used this kind of neoclassical aesthetic. Courthouses that were built in the post-war period in America, post offices, these buildings were all built in the modern style. And this is where the modern style does finally take off. Our modern world owes a debt to the Bauhaus, and the Bauhaus owes a debt to Lucia Maholi, whether anyone knows her name or not. But we should know it. Today, about 90 prints of Lucia Maholi's Bauhaus photography are housed at the Bush Reisinger Museum at Harvard. They were donated by Walter Gropius and are considered part of his archive. But the museum has, over time, actually been going through this archive and crediting Lucia on photos known to be hers. Like the photo that Lucia took lying on the ground, pointing her camera up towards the Bauhaus building in Dessau. So we're looking at a photo um, from around 1926, a gelatin silver print. It's a kind of worm's eye view. So we're uh, looking up at this glass curtain wall and we're looking into the workshops of the Bauhaus. Rob Wiesenberger is a fellow at Harvard who works on their Bauhaus collection. The backside of the photo says in German in purple ink, Photo Lucia Moholi Dessau, ohne Erlaubnis, uh, Reproduktion verboten. Um, without permission, uh, reproduction is verboten, is not allowed, uh, not permitted. This was the intellectual property of, of Lucia Maholi. Uh, yeah. Invisible was produced this week by Sam Greenspan, with Sharif Youssef, Katie Mingle, Kurt Kolstad, Avery Truffleman, Emmett Fitzgerald, and me, Roman Mars. Special thanks to Sarah Bory at the University of Edinburgh, whose research on Lucia Maholi got us started on this story. Thanks also to Jeffrey Selatnik, Gloria Ferris, Sriba Quadrivi, Jan Tishy, and Mike Wolf. Ann Wooten was the voice of Lucia Maholi, and Sharif Youssef played Walter Grobius. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Um, Roman Mars says that if there's a revolving door and you use the one next to it that isn't revolving, then you're a monster because they're so efficient and great. Can I, um, can I ask you a question, Justin? I've been meaning to ask you this for a while. Uh-huh. Why don't you just go do a podcast with Roman Mars? Um, if he would have me, I would love to 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 get over there. I have a a lot of good ideas for like not like this show, but like yeah. his show, like smart stuff. You know what I mean? Like real thinkers, not like I can't stress this enough. Not like this show, yeah. But like smart, like 
erudite podcasting. That's I feel like my true calling and re- where I really feel like my light's under a bushel. Justin, do you want to do like a weird backdoor pilot for smart stuff with Justin and Robin right now and just like give us a topic you might discuss on smart yeah, stuff? Like yeah, like what's, a, what's yeah, the... I'll give you an example. And this would be like co-hosted by me and Roman. Okay, so I'll kind of leave blanks I'll for do, his part. Uh, no, or I'll I can leave, do I can do Roman. No, let me. I'm just gonna leave blanks for his parts. Okay, you don't even want to hear my Roman. No, you could try later, but I'm just gonna leave blanks for like. Hey the guys, Roman it's part. me, Roman Mars. I'm gonna steal your brother. Got him. Okay, that's Kyle. He, he nice. Just have a Grover, Grover vibe. So it'll go. So like, it's kind. Remember, it's like an erudite kind of smart podcast. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, like a podcast so. where you know the host knows the word erudite. Yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of thing. So here's here's kind of what it would go like. Okay, please. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Smart Stuff. I am your host, Justin McElroy. I'm joined, as always, today by Roman Mars. Hey, Justin. Roman, what smart thing are we discussing today? Well, this week, I was excited to learn why there are so many Thai races in swimming. Uh-huh. So in the Rio Games last week, there were three second-place finishers with the exact same time in the men's 100-meter butterfly. Mm. Want to know why? Mm-hmm. So most Olympic events are measured in the thousandth of a second. That's three units past the decimal point. Mm. But swimming is only measured in the hundredths of a second. And the reason is because of the pool itself. Uh-huh. It's virtually impossible to construct a swimming pool with lanes that are exactly equal. Uh-huh. So international swimming regulations allow for a variability of up to three centimeters in length for each lane. Huh. Now, this it, is enough of a difference that you can't guarantee that a swimmer is thousands of a second faster or that the lane is just like a centimeter shorter. Uh, so they drop that third digit to the right of the decimal point and only measure in the hundredths of a second. Uh, what? So when you only measure in hundredths of a second, and that, you get a lot more tie races. Uh, I learned that on Deadspin. Well, folks, that's all we have time for <laughs> on Smart Stuff today. If someone can get Roman Mars to cut out this bit of the podcast and actually try and fill in the blanks there, that would be f***ing stellar. My brother, my brother, and me, featuring the McElroy brothers, can be heard on the Maximum Fun Network. Great job. 99% Invisible is supported by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. It's easy and actually pretty fun to use, but if you have any trouble, they have 24-7 customer support. They offer free custom domains when you sign up for a year. They have beautiful templates to get you started and all the tools you need to set up an online store. Start your free trial today and to get 10% off your first purchase, sign up at squarespace.com slash invisible. 99% Invisible is supported by Blue Apron. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, even people like me who never really learned how to cook. They send you perfectly portioned, high-quality, fresh ingredients that taste better and are better for you. And the recipes are so good. My kids love to help, and they love eating them. And I like learning how to be a better cook and fixing meals I never could imagine on my own. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash 99PI. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash 99PI. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And finally, this proud member of Radiotopia from PRX is supported by our coin-carrying donors, the Knight Foundation and MailChimp. This week on the 99PI MailChimp newsletter, Tsunami Stones. 
haunting markers that dot the coastal hillsides of Japan. Planted decades or even centuries ago, they commemorate past disasters and warn residents of future ones. Subscribe to the newsletter at 99pi.org, but to send better email of your own, go to MailChimp.com. We here at Radiotopia are trying to get more info about who you are and what you like, so if you can, go to surveynerds.com slash 99 and fill out a short survey. I'd really appreciate it. That's surveynerds.com slash 99. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. All of us are on Twitter, Instagram, and Spotify. But to find out more about this story, including cool pictures and links, and listen to all the episodes of 99% Invisible, you must go to 99pi.org. Radio Tempia.